The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, set your feather selection to three and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 229 with guest Rick Brewster, recorded live Tuesday, April 3rd, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now bringing the just-in-time team system class with Joel Semeniuk on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, Crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who gave up club sandwiches, cold turkey, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin here in New London, Connecticut at Pwop Studios on the coast of Connecticut. And Richard Campbell up there in Vancouver, British Columbia. How are you, Richard? I'm very well. Here I am in the western branch of Pwop Studios. That's right, Pwop West Campus. There you go, the West Campus, because I'm now recording Ron As Radio from here. That's right. We're expanding. Having a great time with the new show. Greg's been fabulous. We've been having a blast. Great feedback. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, we, uh, we've been getting a lot of email to that effect. People just don't believe that we can do this and, and you know, like do all, as much as we do it. But, you know, this it's a business, right? Sure it is. And it's also a highly automated one, too. Yeah. There's a lot of work we try and simplify with uh, software. We are programmers, after all. I like to think of myself as somebody who converts advertising dollars into smart programmers. (laughs) (laughs) Contributing to the community. Yeah, that's what it's all about. And uh, to that end, let's uh, read this email from Elena Lawrence, and she says... Uh, Hi, Carl and Richard and all. Thanks for a consistently great show. Richard commented during a recent show on ORM that many listeners are writing in to say how much they appreciate those shows and they would like more. So I'm hastily writing in to counterbalance that. One of the many reasons I like .NET Rocks is that it exposes me to all these technologies that have nothing to do with my job. But on the other hand, they have nothing to do with my job. (laughs) 
Okay. All right. I work for an equipment manufacturer. <laughs> we have a small software staff that we are just starting to use .NET, and we don't really do this big database web service software that everyone else is doing these days. The enterprise stuff is way over my head, so I want to hear about it, but not too much. The Billy Hollis episode on application complexity resonated much more with me. You already do a nice job of mixing up the complexity level and technologies on your show, so this email is not a complaint, just a reminder and a request not to forget us little guys. All the best, Elena Lawrence. Well, Elena, thank you very much. It's uh, it's good to know that it takes all kinds of listeners, and, uh, you know, we cater to everybody, all at the we same time, simultaneously. All at the same time, and yeah. we won't forget. Of course we won't. Uh, but I am going off to explore some other technologies. Hopefully, you guys will value those as well. And uh, we'll make sure we hit some root stuff yep. regularly. Got to remember that. But speaking of ORM, I got a couple it of emails. It seems like all emails are about ORM these days. <laughs> There's been quite a few. But it's hard to ignore emails from my end day. For, for starters, he was our guest on the right. show. And uh, and his very thoughtful emails. Uh, one of them talking about uh, show two two six. That was uh, the show with Dan Simmons talking about the ADO.net entity framework. Uh, here's Iandy's comments. I finished listening to the show two two six, and I had a few comments about the email that you read at the beginning of the show. You brought up the case where people were switching from Inhibernate to Ibatis.net because they wanted more control on the SQL that they used. I wanted to point out that while the default and recommended approach for nHibernate is to let nHibernate handle the SQL generation, it is certainly possible to instruct nHibernate to use your own SQL, or one that the DBA wrote for you, so it is the most optimized query, yeah. or anything in nHibernate. Hmm. In fact, you can even use stored procedures to drive nHibernate if you like them so much. Yeah, okay. You have choice, and, and he's just pointing out that choice is there. It's good. One of the reasons that I like and hibernate is that it frees me from worrying about such concerns until I really have a reason to do it. And in 90% of the cases, I don't really need to interfere with what nHibernate is doing. In the remaining 10%, it is usually 5% using nHibernate not correctly and 5% needing to write my own queries for particular scenarios. Hmm. I have shipped in Hibernate applications with zero SQL code anywhere in the application, and the performance and flexibility of the system was great. Hmm. I have also run into situations where the only option was to take advantage of every little trick that the database offered me, and those fit comfortably in the Hibernate model as well. That said, if you're really into the I want to write my own SQL for everything, then frameworks like Ibatis.net are more appropriate because it is not the core scenario that Hibernate is trying to support. Okay. Cheers, Orin. Great. And uh, it's always good to keep that conversation going, I think. Absolutely. He, he'll follow it up with another email a little while later talking about reporting services saying, hey, I wanted to comment on stuff that's really tough to do, which is localization, specifically localization to Hebrew. Right. And we ended up writing our own UI because not only is it a different character set, but it's written from right to left. Right to yeah. left. Yeah. So maybe it's easy for you left to right writers, but it's a little tougher for us. Yeah. Which is fair. I can't presume to know much about dealing with all of those issues in localization, for sure. I, I certainly can't. That's uh, that's over my head. Uh, let's talk about some of the conferences and code camps that are coming up. Of course, we've been talking about DevTeach. That's where we're going to do our ORM smackdown, our sort of hardball uh, Ted Neward versus Oren Haney, or Allende Rahin, as he likes to be called. Yeah, well, speaking of Allende. Yeah. And uh, that's going to be happening when, Richard? That is May 14th, 18th in Montreal. Montreal, Quebec. And yes. uh, that's uh, devteach.com. 
Uh, also, we'll be at Tech Ed this year in Orlando. That's going to be June 4th to 8th. In Orlando. Yep. Woohoo. Woohoo, back in Orlando. And you better hurry because, uh, generally speaking, by the end of this month, Tech Ed is sold out every year. Yep. So move quickly because you're running out of time. Yep. Uh, code camps. We got four code camps to mention here. First one I'll mention is the Dallas Code Camp at DallasCodeCamp.com. That's happening April 21st. That's this weekend. All right. Better, better. Uh, if you haven't heard about it by now, uh, I don't know. You're running out of time. Running out of time, big time. All right. How about the Day of .NET in Ann Arbor, Michigan? That's at Shrinkster.com slash C-U-K, Charlie Uniform Kilo. And that is May 5th in Ann Arbor. Followed by the West Michigan Day of .NET, and that is May 19th in uh, at Shrinkster.com slash N as in Nancy, 1H as in Henry. And finally, a brand new one we just heard about, the Rally Code Camp. Chris Love sent this to me. It's at Shrinkster.com slash O17. So that's Oscar17 for June 23rd. All right. And uh, also a couple things we've been talking about, the New York tour, Greg Brill's Infusion New York City tour offer for one year. If you're a hotshot programmer, you want to move to New York City and they'll pay for your apartment for a year. Uh, you know, if, they, if you make it through their rigorous testing questioning, of course, uh, you can get the details at shrinkster.com slash KH6. And there's also a great gig in Washington, D.C. for ASP.net gurus. If you live near or willing are willing to be relocated to Washington, D.C., you can get the details there at shrinkster.com slash MMJ. All right, Richard, let's talk paint.net. Rick Brewster is a software developer at Microsoft who's been working there since about 2004 and uh, around various different .NET technologies, and he is 80% of the author of the original paint.net. Uh, would you please welcome Mr. Rick Brewster? Hello, Rick. Hi. Glad to have you on the show. We're a f we're a big fan of your work. Well, thank you. I'm looking back at those old posts in June of 2004 when uh, Paint .NET 1.0 first came along, and everybody oh, said, "Oh boy, a real .NET application." Yeah, it was uh, pretty bare bones back then, though. So, just tell us how it started. So it started as actually my undergraduate senior design project at Washington State University. Um, at the time, the, uh, the class was led by Jack Hagemeister, and we had a project from Microsoft uh, under the mentorship of Kerry Hamill. And the idea was to basically write paint, but to take advantage of the new technologies that came about in .NET and the Windows XP timeframe, mm -hmm. uh, things like GDI Plus, which had anti-aliasing. Um, and so we kind of took it and run with it, or ran with it, rather. And then I've just been kind of cranking away on it ever since. I've gotten some help from Tom Jackson and some other people as well. Oh, that's great. Um, I remember talking to Richard about this and saying, even back then, even in its very primitive form, we've got to get these guys on the show. And, uh, you know, like most things, we didn't hear about it for a while. And then we heard that a new version had come out. And, and it's always been in the, uh, the back of our minds to get you here. So... So tell us about Paint.net in terms of, you know, what you could compare it to and, and what the experience is like uh, to use it. Um, as for what to compare it to, um, I guess what I usually say Paint.net is, is that if you kind of put regular paint on the left side of a graph and then you put Photoshop way at the top right of a graph and then you kind of draw like a exponential curve and put Paint.net in the middle, 
Uh, so it's sort of 10 times paint, but, you know, at most one-tenth of Photoshop. That's kind of the analogy that I make. Um, then for using it, the goal for the program is really to make it as easy to use as possible so that as many people can use it and just get whatever they want done with it without having to, you know, figure out lots of weird technical things or, you know, stumble across some weird, confusing UI. Yeah. And it, it is. It has layers, right? Exactly, yep. Yeah, layers is always a good feature in a paint program. 100% C-sharp, right? Uh, there's a little bit of C++ for the installer and for some shell integration, but the actual application is all C-sharp. And so you started out, this was just a project in the university yeah. to show that the current tools could do things. And I guess there's there's more built-in functionality in the XP world, stuff like, like you said, anti-aliasing. Right, because they actually... they. They, I think what the idea was that they wanted to enhance paint back then, but they didn't have the time or the resources or something. So they kind of threw this idea at us. And I don't think it was really um, the idea or the project wasn't necessarily let's prove something about .NET. It was just let's write paint but use GDI Plus and do some cooler stuff with it. And am I right in saying that the source code is free? It is. Wow, Free. and of course, this was originally on a uh, on the university website, but now you've moved it over to getpaint.net. Yep, because you went and graduated, and you can't leave it there anymore. <laughs> um, actually, we did we did have it there for a while, and it was great pu publicity for the the university. Um, but then after a while, it just it wasn't really being worked on as any as as a university project anymore, and I felt it was more appropriate to move it to another website. Right, and look, a PayPal donate button. Hey, mm -hmm. I've seen those before. <laughs> <laughs> has, has that helped you out at all? Sure. Yeah, PayPal buttons bring back memories <laughs> of my dead laptop. Now, the funny thing is a paint program is a paint program. So, I mean, I I got the idea when you made version one, and now you're at three? Yep. So Actually, what we have just you been... put out 3.05 last week. So what have you been up to in, in a span of only less than two years? Um. Well... We so version one point was pretty bare bones. There's a lot of things you couldn't do. For example, you couldn't even select an area and then resize it. Yet that functionality didn't even make it until two point five. Um, so I guess you could say that over the last couple of years we've been fleshing it out to get sort of the minimum level of functionality that you really need to get any productivity done at all. And then on top of that, we've been adding on just lots of other cool stuff. Um, you know, new effects or filters or, you know, adjustments, you know, um, uh, the gradient tool in 3.0 is something that I really like to show off because when you draw the gradient, it draws it in real time and then you can move the little uh, handles around and it changes in real time and re-renders everything. And it's a really rapid way to draw a gradient and adjust it and you can be done really quick. Is that your Camaro? My Camaro? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? No. The screenshot <laughs> on the website of the Camaro, you know, you got to... Picture of a Camaro. Oh, that, that's actually a picture I took um, last September at an auto show or a classic auto show over near Pullman. Um, cool. It's not my car, but All I right. think there's a lot of people that wish it was their car. <laughs> I was just trying to think of the stupidest question I could ask a, a brilliant developer, and that would be, is that your Camaro? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, we could spend a lot of time here, but... Um, I'd, I'd like to just name off a few, pro because let's face it, I mean, anybody who puts out, what is it, 133,000 lines of source code or something? What is it? Something yep, ridiculous. About that. 
133,000. Anybody who puts out that much source code and says, here, take it, use it, check it out. I am your slave for criticism. Uh, you got to be pretty confident in what you did. So, um, and I know there are probably a lot of listeners who wouldn't have done it. So let me just rattle off a few um, technologies, you know, patterns or what have you, and tell me if and how you use them, if you can remember that far back. But We can try. Okay. Well, let's start out with just like, you know, the basic, oop, objects, object-oriented technology, inheritance, interfaces, uh, the basic stuff. Of course we use those. Of course you use interfaces. Which, Who wouldn't? C-sharp itself is, or in .NET is, is, and the framework itself are very object-oriented. Um, and we've kind of taken that and run with it. And it actually, um, the way that we've implemented things, um, like with Visual Studio, makes it really easy to keep track of all these hundreds of files that have, you know, basically one class per object. Right. Um, as the years go by, the code quality, I think, has been going up. Um, version 1.0 was actually slightly a mess, but it's gotten a lot better since then. Um, inheritance is used, especially for things like, um, like say, version 3.0, the gradient rendering is based off a gradient render base class, and then each type of gradient derives from that to implement a couple specific functions so that they don't have to implement the whole rendering pipeline. They just have to implement the stuff that's specific to their gradient type, et cetera. Cool. The uh, how about plugins? Plugins, yeah, you can do um, effect plugins and also plugins to handle new file types. And there's actually a lot of plugins that are on the forum right now. You can just go onto the forum and download, you know, at least tens and tens of plugins from what I've seen. And how do you discover plugins code-wise? Do you do you have a common interface and then scan a particular plugins directory for them when you start up and enumerate them? Right. So the plugin discovery actually happens about. 250 milliseconds after the UI comes up. That's done for performance reasons. Cool. Um, and then we basically just loop through the effects directory looking for all the DLLs that we can successfully op- uh, load and then search for any classes that derive from the effect base class. Okay. So instead of using an interface, you're using a base class, which right. is fine. Um, file types are handled a little bit differently. We actually search for all the DLLs in the file types directory that implement a certain, uh, it's an iFileType factory interface. Okay. And the reason it was done that way is so that you could implement, uh, like, adapter file type plugins. For example, if you've got, you know, uh, 10 plugins that you want to adapt to the paint.net interface, you can have one paint.net plugin that then exposes all 10 of those. Okay. Dynamically, that is. And uh, did you use a, a model view controller architecture, or what's the basic, uh, what's the basic architecture of this? So there's parts of it that, um, use model view controller. It's not, it's not called model view controller, but we do have, you know, the model is where the data is, and that's actually in paint.net.data.dll. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to start by looking at the document class, um, and then the view class, I guess, is called, um, called like the document view or the surface box rendering class, and then the controller is just, you know, it's the UI layer, the tool classes, and the the actual WinForm stuff on top of that. So 3.0 has MDI support. Uh, was that difficult to do? That took a lot of refactoring and rewriting of the code, and it was actually kind of painful work to do because there was a lot of code that for a lot of weeks, uh, you know, I was writing a lot of code that didn't really make any visible difference to the UI. Yeah. So, you know, quite often when you write, you know, a new effect or something, you can, you know, you write the code and then you see, hey, this is, there's this cool new effect on the screen. That was fun. But then with a lot of the refactoring work that was done, there was no 
you know, immediate tangible benefit to it. But then eventually I was able to get all the MDI stuff working and it was, I think it was really worth it. It took many months to do it, but it's definitely been rewarding. It's a fundamental difference between having one image in your application and multiple images in your application. Yeah, there's a difference between only having one and having zero to many. Yeah, right. There's a lot of things, there's a lot of assumptions in the code that you have to either remove or, you know, rework. You know, quite often some things assume that they were owned by some type of object, which by itself is a bad thing to do anyway. But they assume that, you know, there was only one of them or when I was writing code at a higher level of layering, I assumed that there was only one object contained below me when now there could be zero through many. So not only do you have to figure out which specific one you're talking about, but you also have to handle the case when there's nothing there to begin with, which is when you have no document something. Yeah, I've I've gone through that pain myself. Was yeah, it, it's, it's a lot of work. It is. There's a lot of testing and rules and stuff. And um, I bet implementing the Bezier curve tool was nice having all that that feature in the framework, huh? Yeah, that was actually a pretty cool one to do. It didn't it didn't really take that long to do. Yeah, I was going to say I'm yeah, I'm trying to do that without help, you know, without any help, without a toolkit or something is is a lot of math. And yeah. uh, it's nice that it's just right there in GDI+. Although we've got Tom Jackson, so he he does really well with the math stuff, so Oh, cool. I was going to ask you what Tom's role in the uh, whole equation, what his 20% was. So Tom, like I said, is really good at math. And so sometimes you'll see things in paint.net that are very math-oriented or math-intensive. And quite often he's contributed to a lot of those. Um, for example, the UI for the curves effect, you can um, draw the, you can take the little sample points and it interpolates between those smoothly. He did that. Um, excuse me. Uh, just a lot of other stuff. He's he's actually contributed a lot of the effects that have been added over the last year. Hmm. Um, and for version 2.0, um, I know he worked on a bunch of the new tools that were introduced, and I can't remember exactly which ones. He also did a couple of the effects and stuff then, and a lot of the infrastructure changes. On any of those effects, did you find uh, you had to actually set up matrices and walk through memory, or was everything that you wanted to do there in the framework? Pretty much all of the effects are do not use the .NET framework, you know, like the system.drawing stuff. They're pretty much all direct pixel read and write access. And you didn't find it was that C-sharp was too slow for that? Uh, not really. I mean, there will there'll be some people out there who disagree with me. Yeah. But I found that the performance is quite good. Um, and also, I've implemented it in such a way that it scales for multiple processors automatically. Every effect gets that. So as you get over the years, you know, more and more cores or processors in your computer, paint.net will scale accordingly. Did you use any pointers in C-sharp on safe yeah. mode? Definitely. Oh, okay. Well, there's your answer, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so without without that, you'd be using, like, you know, set pixel, set pixel, get pixel, get pixel, and that, that would be ridiculously slow. Yeah, because every time you call set pixel, that's a method call, which can't be inlined because it's going to possibly throw an exception if you try to access something out of bounds. Yeah. So it's going to be, you know, push all this stuff onto the stack, do some bounds checking, grab the pixel, and then return, unwind your stack frame, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So you're basically doing the same kind of thing you'd be doing in C++, except that since you have unsafe mode in C Sharp, it's just right there. That must have been a breeze. Had you done that kind of stuff before in C++, I take it? 
Yeah, um, a couple years before Paint.net, while I was an an undergrad, I worked on a, in my spare time, I worked on a visualization plugin for Winamp. Oh, cool. So that was a lot of fun. I did a lot of, you know, transformation functions and, you know, pixel blit this, blit that, you know, move this, blur that, that kind of stuff. It wasn't Milk Drop by any chance, was it? No, it was actually called Epica. Okay. It was, um, it was... Know, reasonably popular, not you know frontline news or anything or front page news, but still, I mean that's challenging. Yeah, it was a lot of fun though. It's kind of one of those things where you spend about half your time working on it and the other half just kind of staring at it, going, "Wow, that's cool." Um, was the magic wand easy to implement? How'd you do that? Um, you really have to ask Tom about that. Okay, he knows all about that. Well, you tell me then. What what was the something that w- was really cool? To, to do? What was your favorite thing, feature implement? Um, like, what, what, after you were oh. done, you sat back and said, whoa, that's some cool code. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's been, like, a lot of that. So, um, I can tell you one of the more difficult ones that after I was done, I was very happy it was done. Okay. Um, the Move Selected Pixels tool, basically, you can go and select an area, and then you can jump over this tool to move the selected pixels around, to rotate it, to stretch it, to do all sorts of other things. Um, that one is actually extremely complicated because the way paint.net is currently set up, it does, uh, each history item assumes that the tool isn't, or when you add a history item, it's like continually activating, deactivating the tool to sort of force a stateful refresh Ooh. so that it doesn't, it kind of forces it so that it can't you know keep state between each history item. So it, it's kind of a, way to avoid bug hazards, uh, but the, this tool needed to be able to keep state between those. So it's, it's constantly, it's serializing data and then re-serializing itself to kind of pick up where it left off and do all sorts of stuff. But then as you jump back and forth through the history, it really complicates both the state and the rendering. So that took actually probably two months to actually get completely correct. Okay. Um, did you use reflection at all? Um. There's actually one interesting place where we use reflection, even since version 1.0, that's actually cut down on a lot of time for writing the code for us. And that is just um, use reflection for loading the icons and strings for the menu items. Basically, what we do is um, we would actually loop through all the variables or the fields that are declared in the class. Hmm. And if we saw that it was a menu item, we would try to grab an icon resource or PNG file, I mean, you know, menu file new icon.png. Nice. So because of that, we never had to write any code for actually loading those icons or those string names. We just added the menu item, and it would pick up the uh, icon right away. That's awesome. <laughs> Very <laughs> clever. Yeah. I just love the fact that you've done all this multiprocessor testing on paint. <laughs> like, it's not the place you'd think about doing lots of multiprocessor work. Sure you would. Okay, why? <laughs> well, because there's a lot of graphics processing going on. And graphics is inherently highly parallelizable. So you're talking about, let's say you have to sharpen an image. Right. Um, you would split it up into quadrants or halves and send one to one pro- processor another to another processor or, or one to one thread, one to another thread? Is that what you do? Pretty much. 
And so yet, you have to write your you have to write your rendering code so that it can kind of start rendering from any part of the image and then stop rendering at wherever else I tell you to stop rendering. Yeah, and then you need to stitch all that stuff back together. Pretty much, yeah. All right, blurring. Blurring is to me like insane. How do you do that? <laughs> do you do that? Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's a it's a just a classic Gaussian blur kernel that we implemented for the most part. Basically, what you're doing is just a weighted average over rec- you know for each pixel you take a weighted average of the pixels surrounding it. All right, I can I can see that now. Sure. It seems like the other effects me. like median and uh, there's median unfocus. An outline, which are all based on sort of doing this. Actually, this is some stuff that Tom implemented, so he'd know more about it. But he uses a histogram model for rendering this stuff. Now, who's Tom? Tom oh, Jackson. He's Jackson. the other developer who contributes to Paint on that right now. Okay, I just wanted to get his last name out there in case we didn't. Yeah, he's the math guy. Okay. So the effects like median, outline, and unfocus use uh, some histogram mathematics uh, to do some other interesting stuff. Um, and they're actually, they run really a lot faster than I was expecting them to. But they can, you can do a lot of interesting stuff with them. How is unfocused different from blur? Okay, so that's an interesting question. So mathematically, <laughs> what you've got is Gaussian blur takes, um, so you've got uh, basically a radius that you define. So you can think of the area that it's taking an average of as a circle around each pixel, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So unfocus takes every pixel within that circle and weights it evenly. So every pixel contributes the exact same amount. But with Gaussian blur, the pixels that are closer to that, the the destination pixel, are weighted heavier. Sure. So the pixels that are further away contribute less. Which is funny, because I'd think that in focus, or unfocus, you would be, you would have a focal point that you're working from, and the blur would vary. But I guess, you know, you're treating the whole image as the focal point. Yeah. So you can actually take unfocus on an image, apply it, and then you can kind of, uh, if you've got the original image on another layer, you can kind of take a, a, a transparency gradient to the blurred copy of it and then do some interesting effects with that where you would have part of it in focus and then part of it out of focus. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I can't believe the entertainment value you can get from paint. It's a serious, I mean... This is exercising a major portion of the framework. I mean, seriously, there's a lot of stuff going on. How about uh, serialization? Uh, yeah, we definitely use that. We actually use that for our um, our native file type, um, the .pdn files. Mm-hmm. And one thing that that allowed us to do, especially for version 1.0, where we were only working on it over a 15-week period, it let us write the file saving and loading code in like an hour or two instead of spending you know a week figuring out okay, well, I write a, a 2 to the file, and that means that it's, you know, this color or this format. You know, we didn't have to figure out some crazy binary format to, you know, to document and to adhere to. We just said, here's our document object, serialize it. Yay, we're done. So are you like me in thinking that PNG is the best graphics format out there, period? I do like PNG. That's one of the reasons why Paint.net defaults to PNG for single-layer images when you go to save it. That's cool. I mean, you have the compression, but you also have the alpha channel. It's exactly. nice, nice stuff. And Tom you don't have to pay any... Another good one, especially, it's especially popular in the game development community because it's a really easy file format to consume. But you don't really see, you know, like web browser support for it. Which one did you say? Targa. Targa. Or, 
yeah. PGA. Yeah. The, the alpha channel obviously allows for transparency, so it makes your job easier as a programmer to work with PNG. So you work, do you convert things to PNG and natively work with them or are you, no, you obviously have to work with bitmaps in windows. Yeah, we work with just a straight bitmap object. It's actually not the, the system dot drawing bitmap object. We have our own class called surface. Really? Let's just, uh, keep our own uh, strategy for allocation and all that sort of stuff. Hey, have you ever felt envy for the new slick interfaces introduced in windows Vista? I'm sure you want to have something similar in your apps as well, but unfortunately, it's quite hard to achieve with Windows Forms. Of course, there's WPF, but that's a different story. But wouldn't it be nice if you could have scaling, rotations, animations, alpha blending, gradients, and that kind of stuff in classic Windows Forms? Yeah, Windows Forms, which you're all using today. How cool would your applications be then? Well, you can see for yourself. Go ahead and download Telerik RAD Controls Suite for Windows Forms, the first Vista-style controls for Windows Forms. Play with a visual style builder and enjoy interactive design time support, which eliminates the need to write a lot of code. Pick a Vista piece of UI and try to implement it with the Telerik Controls. Chances are you could do it. So where's the catch? Probably performance hit, right? Well, not really. The underlying framework is highly optimized to reduce repainting and layout rearrangement. But again, it's best to see for yourself. Why not visit Telerik at www.telerik.com and tell them Carl sent you. So how do you, how do you deal with uh, transparency internally? Just using the alpha stuff that's built into the framework? No, so the entire rendering pipeline is is custom done. It's uh, wow. our own uh, our own code. It's all software based. It's all C sharp. Wow, that's ambitious. Yeah, this it's is... actually kind of interesting because so you want when you choose the blend mode for each layer, you're actually choosing um, a blend mode class that um, is used internally, and we actually use some code generation to generate all the code for those effects. The reason being is that each one of those is mostly the same, except for a couple, uh, a little bit of the inner loop for the for the blending code. And we actually sort of hijacked the C++ preprocessor to do this. How so? Pre- just the uh, preprocessor macros, and we uh, run it as a pre uh, We run it as a precompilation step before the uh, data class runs. If you if you open up the source code, you'll see a generated code project. And that's where that stuff is done. Wow. That also makes it really easy to add a new uh, a new layer blending type. Sure. You, there's a unlimited history, and I gotta believe that you're just serializing PNGs out to disk and saving them in multi, you know different numbers and stuff, and cleaning them up when you're done. Because it says it's uh, the length of the history is only limited by available disk space. That's really smart because, you know, that stuff can take up a lot of memory if you're working with large files. And why keep it around? I, I use PaintShop Pro. And, uh, you know, it, it's a memory hog. And when you're done, like all the data that's on the clipboard, it asks you if you want to delete it. But I got to admit that it's, I, I mean, I got to believe that it's keeping the history in memory and not on the disk. I don't know how they implement stuff, but yeah, we pretty much just dump stuff to disk. Each stratum takes a little bit of memory just for some bookkeeping, 
but then they always we always try to dump as much to disk as we can. So like if you you know delete a rectangular part of the image, the first thing we do is we copy that to a disk file and we load it back. Sometimes we use the built-in .NET serialization stuff, and sometimes uh, for whatever reason we use our own custom code. Sometimes it's a lot uh, more performant or a lot easier because we have some very specific requirements for the way we want to load and save stuff. For let me ask you this: It's been a long time since I did animation and masking and stuff, and it was a long time ago. But for the transparency and layers, do you actually have to create masks, or do, is there enough stuff built into .NET that you can just, uh, you know, add it? Or, or, or you know, I guess you're using your own bitmap stuff. So, are you making your own masks in in memory? So each layer is based on the, or every single pixel is based on the BGRA pixel format. So every single pixel has an alpha value. So okay. there's sort sure. of an implicit mask there, but we don't, we don't yet have the ability to define an additional mask on top of that. Well, it sounds like you don't need to. Well, you kind of do because quite often you, there's some special effects you want to do where say you have a picture. Well, I guess the main reason you need to be able to do that is because we don't provide a really good way to edit the alpha channel directly. So oh. if you've got a picture of someone and you want to add a vignette effect, that's mm. kind of a pain to do right now in some for some pictures. You have this classic problem where you're trying to overlay one picture on the other picture and the picture the top picture doesn't have a clean background, you know, it's it may be a single color but there may be variations in pixel pixelated somewhere. And then, you know, you, you, you put it on there and you see speckles. And, uh, you know, some ni- really nice paint programs clean up those speckles, but it's a slippery slope because how far do you go? What's a speckle and what's part of the picture? Do you, do you guys do any of that kind of logic or do you just... So we do have some tools for working with that kind of stuff, like the Magic Wand tool. Um, however, we don't support soft selections. So every pixel is either selected or not. You can't have something sort of like half-selected so that when you move around, it's half-transparent. So like no feathering um, kind of thing? That feathering. So we don't have built-in feathering. There is a plugin you can get on the forum that lets you do that. Oh, um, cool. There's actually plugins on the forum for doing a lot of things. Um, but we don't yet support that kind of stuff you know, in a really, really robust fashion. Especially, it's a really hard problem to tackle. There's been a lot of research in the computer graphics field in that. What about using the uh, the onboard GPUs? I mean, I guess you really haven't done a Vista version per se, but I got to think now you can take advantage of a lot of horsepower in those video cards. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of horsepower in those, um, especially if you go look at those folding at home graphs where they're running, you know, cancer calculations on a an ATI Radeon or something. That's like ten times faster. Um, I think the main reason that we haven't done that yet is just there's so much, well, first off, there's a whole, there's just so much other stuff that we, that we're always working on first. Right. Um, and the other thing that I've, I guess, been kind of worried about is that first off, when you take a dependency on something like DirectX, that's going to be pulling in a lot more DLLs. So that's performance and memory usage. There's also just, I don't know if you've ever tried to you know, run a game on Windows, but there's always, you know, sometimes it works great. But then sometimes maybe you've got an older graphics card or your driver is out of date or something. And so something doesn't work correctly or there's some discrepancy between the way it works on my computer versus your computer. 
So for right now, having a software-only rendering pipeline pretty much eliminates all of that. Right. I, I also got to wonder if you ever would want to implement directly against the GPU or if the answer is to make a WPF version of Paint and let WPF deal with that. Um, that's a possibility. Um, right now, WPF doesn't um, support like any of the layer blending modes right. that we want to do. So we pretty much would have to be making use of the WPF software rasterizer. Um, but um, you know, maybe there's some way to take advantage of the GPU, but I haven't really investigated it enough to really say, yeah, we get a three-fold increase if you've got a GeForce 600 or something. Mm. Well, I, I didn't, I'm still chuckling about it's a paint program. And yet it's a tour de force of all of these technologies, and there's just more and more opportunity to explore it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to work on because of that. Uh, globalization slash localization. You've got, what is this thing, in eight languages now? Sure do. That must have been a bit of work. Not for me. <laughs> so, um, so the first version of Paint.net that was uh, globalized was 2.5, and that was... November of 2005, um, and that was actually, that was a lot of work because all the strings in the code at that point were in the code, so there was no separate resource file. So I had to actually go through and manually move every one to a resource file. And so then that's the globalization that, process to make a global the string library. process if you have already, if you are starting out with an application that is not yet globalized. Right. And I got to think, you don't have that many strings in Paint. I mean, it's not pages and pages of text. There's currently 850 strings. I mean, there are pages and pages. <laughs> but it's not, I mean, it's not going to be anywhere near the number of strings that are in something like Visual Studio, for instance. Back. Not even, you know, remotely close to what Windows has. So, Rick, you were responsible for the globalization of all the strings. But then you said, you've also said, well, it wasn't a lot of work for me. There were other folks that did the localization part. Yeah. And so actually, for version 2.5 and 2.6, a guy named Dennis Dietrich did the German translation. And then uh, between 2.6 and 3.0, you know, that in-between time, uh, there were a lot of people on the forums who were publishing just a lot of, you know, community language packs for all sorts of languages. And then for 3.0, I was actually approached by some internal guys, and they volunteered to do uh, the translations for... Um, all the non-English languages. So right now, Paint.net supports all the languages that we've been able to find uh, people to main- who can maintain them for. Right, because it's not this version, it's the next one you need to worry about. Yeah. You know, I'm looking through the bugs that you fixed in each release, and here's one that I'm scratching my head over, Make you maybe explain what happened. Fixed crash when clicking File New when there's a malformed image in the clipboard. Okay, so what happens there? is when you click File New, it brings up that dialog box with the, you know, the width and the height of the image that you want. Mm-hmm. And what it does is there's two defaults for the, that width and height. The first one is 800 by 600, and the second one is the size of whatever image is on the clipboard. Oh. So if it can't figure that out, then it should just default to 800 by 600. But at that point, it was, there, you know, there wasn't a, tar- a try-catch. In that I got part. it. Wow, that I was really scratching my head there. That's an unobvious problem. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and bring, you know, um, what about you know testing? Did you guys implement uh, unit tests or NUnit or anything like that? No, actually, 
And, you know, this is actually kind of embarrassing, but we don't have any unit tests at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, so, so no. Take that, Belware. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a, a great tour of the possibilities of the framework, but not a great tour of development methodologies. Well, right. yes and no. No for the oh? testing, yes for everything else. Okay. So you could wire it up to uh, NUnit if you wanted to now after the fact. Oh, yeah. It's just it's one of those things that it's always hard to retrofit something into an existing application. Right. Especially 133,000 lines of freaking code. It's a lot of work to retrofit const correctness. And for this, you know, it's hard to retrofit unit testing. But it's not hard. It's just a lot of work. Yeah. Sure. And so when given the choice between implementing unit tests or drinking beer, I will... <laughs> I drink beer. <laughs> and whenever somebody fusses, you offer to pay them back every cent they paid for it, right? Exactly. <laughs> See, listeners, just do it and stick to your guns. That's what there I'm saying. You go. So what about the 64-bit conversions you've done? Yeah. Um. So what do you mean by conversion? Just the, the port to 64-bit? Well, we, what did it yeah. take to make it run under 64-bit? Um, well, the application itself didn't really need much. I think there was one dependency that we had on the, the WIA library for doing scanning and printing um, that we had to kind of jump through some hoops because there was only a 32-bit DLL for that available. But other than that, for the most part, a C-sharp application is really just, you know, click yep. to change it from x86 to any CPU and compile it, and you're good to go. Yep. Um, the wow. biggest change was in the installer, actually. Um, yep. The installer, I wanted to make sure that there was still only one installer to download just to keep the whole simplicity thing going. So it kind of it had to be able to figure out whether it was on 64-bit or 32-bit, where to copy files. It had to do a couple things to fudge the actual MSI file because when we build the MSI file, which is the native Windows installer file format, we actually build it to target 64-bit. That way, it actually goes to the C colon program files instead of the C colon program files x86 directory. But then right. you run that on a 32-bit system. So we actually have to run a quick little patch to the MSI to you know, flip that bit over to 32-bit uh, before we install it. But you don't want to run the 32-bit installer on a 64-bit system because then everything gets stuffed in the program files x86. And so it's, there's a lot of kind of jumping around that you have to do there. How about Vista? Did Vista prove, uh, prove difficult to, to, to make it run? Or did everything work smoothly? Or? Not really. There's only... Um, it was mainly the auto-updater that had to be... had to have a little more intelligence in it to be able to handle the case of sort of the little admin versus big admin, you know, the mm. not elevated versus elevated user. Mm. Um, so it had to be able to allow you to check for updates when you didn't actually have administrative privileges. And then when you, when you went to install it, it had to make sure that it used the, uh, the shell execute function in the correct way so that the, the Lua dialog, or sorry, the, the UAC dialog would come up correctly. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. I also see that there are a few rare race conditions. So was uh, is threading a challenge in general, or um, was, were the, these uh, sort of out of the ordinary? So threading continues to be an interesting problem sometimes. You write some threading code, and it just works right, and, it's, and you're really proud of it. And you go out and drink a beer, and you're, <clears throat> everything's good. Um, but other times, you, you, I quite often find, you know, maybe there'll be a slight, a subtle bug 
that only happens like you know if the planets are aligned in some yeah. weird way. One in a million times. Oh yeah. Um, so there's a lot of you have to ha- you have to actually you know you write some of this code and then you have to actually step through it carefully and analyze it and sort of prove to yourself that it's correct before you really before you check it in. And even then, it's not always correct. No, it's true. You can't you can't uh, just rely on your empirical evidence what you see. Right, because you have to actually kind of step through multiple parts of the code. Um, simultaneously to kind yeah. of prove that to yourself. You have to say, well, if this block of code is at line 5 and this one's at line 8, and then this one goes through line 15, but the other side only goes up to line you know, 11 or something, you have to kind of do things simultaneously. And that's something that is notoriously difficult for pretty much everybody to do you know, really well all the time. Kate Gregory has that gene. she seems to understand that really well i'm curious when it comes to multi-threading issues does multiple processors impact that at all or is a thread a thread regardless of the number of processors um so the multi-processor stuff definitely impacts that because at that point you actually you literally have multiple threads executing simultaneously whereas on a single processor machine you'll have you know it kind of takes turns between the threads so maybe this one executes for a millisecond and the next one executes for two milliseconds etc um there's actually a change I had to make into the, uh, the threading system for effects, whereby it will always use a minimum of two threads, even if you've only got a single processor system. That, um, and that was done to ensure a more consistent execution environment for effect developers, because I saw there were some people that would write effects that worked great on single processor machines, but then would fail on multiprocessor or hyper-threaded machines. In- an interesting problem. And you say other programmers, of course, you've exposed the source code, but it's not really a, quote, open source project. You're not doing the source forge thing or anything like that. Right. So open source, the term by itself, you know, in quotation marks, is actually kind of a, a, a vague term. Um, you know, some people think it means uh, open source means, you know, the source code is on a CVS server and anybody is welcome to uh, contribute source to it. Uh, in other circles, open source might mean that we just release the source code and then we take patches from people. In other circles, it might mean we just release the source code, we just kind of throw it over the fence. So right. open source, basically, I guess the common definition is the source code is available. Um, so paint.net is kind of in the latter group where we throw the source code over the fence. What, uh, what was the reason f- that you no longer support Windows 2000 with the current version? Okay, so this is one that I actually get asked a lot, and I don't think I've actually provided a really good answer for it yet. Um, uh, part of the reason was um, it's kind of a maintenance issue, really. Um, I do not actually have a Windows 2000 disk around, so I personally cannot test it, and then it would take me a while to actually find a Windows 2000 disk, set up a virtual PC machine, and then I have to take like a week or two to actually test the program enough, especially in the areas where the code paths differ between Windows 2000 and XP or Vista. And it would take a lot of time to actually uh, keep that up for every single new release. And that would just take a, be particularly taxing, especially since we're going to a monthly release schedule for these minor updates that we're doing. And it was just deemed to not... Now, I hate to say this to Windows 2000 users, but it was just... It wasn't worth the effort. Yeah. I bet you don't have a Win 3.1 version either. <laughs> Just a guess. Nope. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the number of people who are using Windows 2000 for paint programs is probably pretty low. Yeah. <clears throat> Although I'm sure you get the emails. 
We do. Well, we get forum posts mostly, an occasional email about it. Um, but it's kind of like you know the original window, or the, sorry, the original Paint.net didn't support Windows 98 or Windows ME. And I used to get lots of emails about that. But then over the years, and here's an interesting you know graph for you to draw: uh, the the number of emails asking for Windows 9X support declined, while the popularity of Paint.net soared. So there was kind of an inverse correlation there where as time went on, fewer people were using that version of Windows, but more people were using Paint.net. I like this uh, uh, change in 3.05, removed. The clear history button has been removed because it was not very useful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like, why would you want to just clear your history, right? Well, the reason I wanted to remove that was because I noticed here and there that some people... So, again, going back to the fact that all the history is saved to disk... It's not, you know, it's not using up any memory if you just clear the history. At least it isn't using up very much. And so I would see some users that would be worried about the memory usage of Paint.net, and they would say, "Oh, I've only got, you know, 400 megabytes of memory. You know, I need to click that button every once in a while just to make sure Paint.net doesn't, you know, do something bad." But the thing is, they really don't. And so I want to remove that because I guess you could say it, it helps to keep the user less nervous or something because it's not really something they should have to worry about. Yeah. Now you say that Paint.net 4.0 is a very long ways away. Yeah. About two years out, you're saying. That's the current guess. Why is that? Um, it's just a matter of how much work needs to be done and how much time I have available to work on it. So you now have a vision of what 4.0 is supposed to look like? Um, we've, Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. It ends at And the you're vision. not going to tell anybody because it'll just make you miserable. Well, I mean, if you read that paragraph that I put on the website, I mean, there's some fundamental changes that have to happen in Paint.net. There's some stuff to the data layer, the rendering layer, and the application model that just have to change in order to enable us to um, either add or change existing or add new features or change existing features without worrying about having to break other stuff. Right now, right. Paint.net has a lot of stuff where you know, everything works, but some of it only works because of trial and error and because of, you know, reactive uh, bug fixing. I mean, this was a, a, a university project, and uh, you're at a university. When does this go away? What do you mean, when did this go away? Never. <laughs> well, I, I, never? What, what do you mean when you say this? Well, I'm talking about paint.net, like it... I think it served its purpose. I don't know if it has served its purpose for you. You know. Well, it keeps serving its purpose for me because I like writing code. Right. And so sometimes you just want to kind of go off for a weekend and just, you know, write code. I think what Richard's trying to say is when are people going to stop downloading it, right? When it, when are people going to lose interest in it? I don't know. The interest, the download rate keeps going up, so we'll see. <laughs> I like your attitude, man. Absolutely. I, PNG out? Yeah. What What's the story about PNG out? PNG out is a little utility written by a guy named Ken Silverman. Um, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he wrote uh, large portions of the original Duke Nukem 3D. Awesome. So you know that PNG out is awesome. Um, but really, it's a utility for um, compressing the heck out of PNG images. Basically, what the guy, what he did is he implemented an extremely aggressive PN, uh, an extremely aggressive implementation of the compression algorithm, and I've used it on the Paint.net stuff uh, to save a, a 
about 300K off the download size. Nice. And multiplied by several hundred thousand downloads a month, and that's you know a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. And HD photo? This is HD something we haven't really talked about. HD photo is something about. I'd love to do, but there's currently a bug in the 64-bit uh, metadata handler that's preventing me from releasing a plugin or uh, a built-in codec for it. Let's tell the listeners what HD photo is. HD photo is, um, I think it's kind of like JPEG 2000. I'm not really sure about that, but really what it does is it lets you, um, you can have a smaller file size, but better quality. And it also supports an alpha channel. So it's kind of like, oh, and it also can store lossless or store losslessly. So it's kind of like a, it's a better version of JPEG plus some elements of PNG. Plus it's, I think the, the format specification is open, so it'll be available on all sorts of devices and stuff. And I see that uh, it only allows integer operations with no divides for both compression and decompression. So that's uh, part of the implementation details. Uh, basically, what they're saying is that you can implement it without requiring, say, a floating point processor, nice. which is important on some mobile devices because that adds a lot to the cost. Right. Yeah, we don't even think about it when saving a JPEG takes no time at all compared to, like, a, you know, a PDF or something. Well, it's been a long time since a desktop machine didn't have a floating point processor That's in it. true. Right, but your mobile phone, that's a different story. Yeah, totally different story. Yep. Or your digital camera. So Paint.net ported to Mono? Um, I don't believe there's a working release that's publicly available yet. Okay. Well, I haven't been involved with that, really. I've emailed back and forth with Miguel de Acaza a few times. Um, and I see, you know, he puts up a blog post every once in a while, some screenshots, and that's, you know, I know pretty much as much as is publicly available. Interesting challenge, though. You know, he, what a great test for his implementation of the CLR to see if it really does do everything it's supposed to do on the WinForm side and on the rendering side. Right. So one thing that we've done that's kind of ended up helping them a lot is we've isolated all of our system-specific code, essentially all of our P-invokes, to oh, yes. DLL. And so that helps to create a really good segregation between you know, .NET only versus, hey, this is the part that uses you know, Win32 native stuff. Yeah, that's so good. So I guess the idea is that if somebody wanted to port Paint.NET to some other platform, they could just implement system layer, and then they'd be done. Cross your fingers. Very good. So, Rick, we're coming to the end of the show. Is there any other anything you want to plug or push or otherwise uh, say to the listeners? I would say download Paint.NET and then go on the forums and check it out because there's a lot of uh, the forums have become really, really active, especially lately. Uh, there's a lot of information about Paint.net that you can get on there. You know, it's not just a simple little paint program. There's some really interesting stuff you can do on there. And there's some people on there that are doing some stuff with Paint.net, and I have no idea how they did it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so it's not just about drawing with paint, but more of the style of UI, uh, really development methodology around visualization? Um, well, it's more about... Just, you know, what would you usually use Paint or Photoshop for? But, you know, Paint's not powerful enough, and Photoshop is generally too expensive, and there's some other right. software out there that's a bit too complicated. Um, and so they find Paint.net, and I guess they really like it, and they find all these cool tricks for doing really interesting stuff, and sometimes they find new stuff that I never thought of. And, I, saw I, you were on, really cool. I saw you on... I saw you listed on Dig. You know, it's creativity. 
Right. I saw you listed on Dig. Yeah, that happens every once in a while, and that's great. That really yeah. boosts the website traffic. <laughs> yeah, you can handle it too. Apparently, yeah, you can. You can kind of tell when you get Dig when you look at the website stats, and it just kind of goes boing, boing. <laughs> <laughs> And it happens every so often, but I guess you've you've got a cadre of serious art people now using your tool. It's got to have quite a focus on it. Yeah, and it also it actually it really gives me a lot of feedback for how to or what to do in the future versions of Paint on Net. For example, there are a lot of people coming on the forums where they wanted to take two pictures and they kind of wanted to blend between them, you know, to have sort of one picture fading out from the left to the right and the other one doing the opposite. And so that kind of drove a lot of the the design for the gradient tool. Cool. And so on and so forth. Well, Rick, you should be very proud of your accomplishment. This is a seriously cool program. Seriously cool. And uh, thanks for being on the show and telling everybody about it. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. .net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a